Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Zero Hour. I'm your host, Richard R.J. Escal. A few years back, it seemed that all of a sudden, everybody was reading a book called Sapiens by Yuval Harari, uh, subtitled A Brief History of Humankind, a lot of ambition in that subtitle. Uh, it purported to tell the story of humanity, and while not brief by any standard definition of the word, it was, in fact, something that uh, would sit on a shelf. And uh, everybody was, I knew, or many people I knew were fascinated by it. Uh, I avoided it for some time and then picked it up and found myself thinking, well, this guy's a good writer. He's, he brings you, he draws you in. He's highly readable. But after a while, well, I'll, I'll let my guest um uh, as she did so ably in her recent uh, article for Current Affairs magazine, uh, give um, give concreteness to what I felt my increasing sense of disquietude as I continue to read and ultimately did not complete this book, Sapiens. Uh, my guest is Darshna Narayanan. She is a neuroscientist and a writer. And uh, the article that she wrote for Current Affairs was headlined, The Dangerous Populist Sciences, uh, excuse me, The Dangerous Populist Science of Yuval Noah Harari. Uh, it's subtitled the best, and these are again probably the editor's words, but the best-selling author is a gifted storyteller and popular speaker, but he sacrifices science for sensationalism, and his work is riddled with errors. So first of all, Darshana, thank you so much for coming on the program. Thank you, Richard. Thanks for having me on the program. Uh, delightful to have you. And uh, as... I began to say in my introduction, you know, first of all, <clears throat> I don't know where to begin. This guy seemed like a pleasant enough companion in recounting the history of humanity and all of this. But uh, I began to grow increasingly uncomfortable with his pronouncements with absolute authority on things that struck me as unknowable and uh, but but not expressed with any sense of. Uh, we believe that or we think that or there are those who say, but just simply pronouncements. And um, also I found myself after a while um, getting very, very annoyed with, may I say, the white male pronouncement voice. And I am a white male. So and yet this guy is beloved and admired by people the world over, so apparently I'm in the exception in having bailed on his book, aren't I? Uh, I, w- I would say this, that I, like you, avoid- avoided it for a while and, and came to it late, but um, it was spectacularly popular by the time I got around to reading it and um, almost immediately um, started questioning the science, um, especially his evolutionary biology part. You know, his writing is so vast that I don't think a person from a single field can satisfyingly critique the breadth of what he's um, he's written. I did attempt, you know, some parts of it. Um, but uh, but, yeah, I was immediately struck by, you know, the lack of scientific weight, um, if you will. And, and very much like you said, you know, 
anyone, of course, is welcome and, and free to speculate, but, um, but presenting speculation as certainty, um, an objective certainty, I think is very problematic. Um, in many, many ways, especially when people are treating your book as, you know, scientific nonfiction um, and, you know, quoting it, maybe making decisions based on it. Um, you know, that comes that comes with certain responsibility and uh, it is not to be taken lightly, I think. Yes. And your article, maybe we'll follow the flow of your article, which is. You begin by talking, giving examples of the sort of guru-like, uh, status that he's, uh, that he's accorded by so many of his followers and some of the questions you find uh, astonishing. We use the word astonishing. They certainly are. Some of the questions that he's asked a hundred years from now, do you think we will still care about being happy? I mean, that's, uh, not only a, 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 a very broad question, but I mean, you know, who the hell knows would be the only rational response to a question like that. One would presume so, since it's human nature to be happy. Um, uh, studying languages, what I do is it's do, is it still relevant? And how do I prepare for the future? What do we want to want? At the end of Sapiens, you said we should be asking the question, what do we want to want? Well, what do you think we should want to want? I mean, this is getting preposterous to me. I mean, this to me is like a parody of um, you know, cult behavior. Is, am I being unfair? There's, there's definitely some of this. Um, I think my favorite of this, the one that really um, highlights the cult side of it, is the one that asks, uh, says, you as somebody who practices vipassana, which is a kind of silent meditation, does that help you get closer to the force? <laughs> is that where you get closer to the force? Right? A question like that really um, kind of, I think, to me, illustrates the sort of status, um, that he, uh, that he is given. And I, you know, like this was, this was not cherry picking in any way. I watched hours of videos and I could have, you know, filled, and I did for an earlier draft, fill pages and pages of these questions that I found quite startling, um, amusing if it, if, you know, it wasn't so sort of widely taken seriously. Um, but yeah, I think these questions very much highlight, um, both the problem and, you know, sort of the, um, the reception that he has received. Yeah. And, you know, that question of yours, uh, that you picked out as your favorite, well, the Pasna meditation, uh, obviously is a, is a Buddhist meditational practice. Uh, the force is from the Star Wars movies, right? It's not, out of any kind of uh, spiritual tradition, uh, do you happen to remember? This is a trivial question of mine, but uh, I'm given to those from time to time. Do you happen to remember what his answer to that question was? Yeah, I actually um, wrote some part of the the answer down. He says, "If you can't observe the reality, if I can't, sorry, if I can't observe the reality of my own breath for ten minutes, how can I?" Ob- uh, hope to observe the reality of the geopolitical system. So he's saying this, he starts by saying, I practice Vipana, Vipassana meditation to see reality more clearly. And then says, you know, he does, he does this to sort of observe the reality of the geopolitical system. 
um, which is really, I hope not, not a way one should like get scientific insights and things by, you know, silent meditation. You have to get out in the world and get dirty and experiment and get it wrong and be willing to say you don't know and say that, you know, we may not have certainty on, you know, things that we would like to have certain answers for. And I think, um, I think those sorts of answers are, are hard to hear and, and maybe less entertaining to hear, honestly. You know, it, it's so interesting, Darshana, because it, it, that's a cultic answer. And it's not because I have any criticism of, of Vipassana meditation. I know people who practice it and get great benefit from it. And um I've actually tried it myself and, you know, found it a positive experience. But to suggest that one can't understand global affairs until one follows their breath for 10 minutes, I could list a lot of brilliant historians and economists and thinkers of various kinds, you know, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say they're probably Noam Chomsky doesn't follow his breath. And, you know, we could name all sorts of people that probably don't and yet have useful insights to share with us. So to me, that's more, that's an answer of somebody who's already accepted their statue, their status as, uh, you get what I, I think you get what I'm driving at, don't you? As guru. Guru, um, yes. Is, is what I would say. Yeah, m- most definitely. Um, and to this point, yes, to each his own, you know, I, I do yoga, which I find incredibly, um, helpful and, and calming. And, you know, we all have our own ways of staying sane. Um, but I think to, to another point of yours, um, this idea that we can expect one human, be it man or woman, to have all of these answers that we, you know, like collectively strive to answer. And can it, our world is complex. We can only collectively um, answer, you know, or sort of collectively decide on our reality, if you will, to have this one person who's who's an authority on this whole range of topics and that we would accept that is, is very problematic. It, it is to me, and you, you know, jumping ahead, and you know, you say his manner is soft-spoken, even shy, and I've seen interviews with him where he does appear to be that way. Which, and I don't mean to pile on this, but there is also kind of a guru's, you know, manner. But he 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 says a uh, hundred years from now, it is quite likely that humans will disappear, and the earth will be populated by very different beings like cyborgs and artificial intelligence. I've actually done a lot of writing and research and digging into the question of artificial intelligence, talking to computer scientists, other people, you're a neuroscientist. You know, there's a great deal of controversy, as you, I'm sure, know about whether such a thing as artificial intelligence is is even possible, uh, much less within a 100 years. And uh, it seems to me, you know, too many people are eager to equate something that sounds like a human with human intelligence, which, you know, I've said it's like arguing that vinyl is an artificial cow, right? It's an output. It's not, it's not the essence of the being. Um, but Harari states it as a given and says it's difficult to predict, quote, what kind of emotional or mental life such entities will have. Given that he's, um, 
followed, as you point out, by people like Bill Gates or whomever, uh, I don't remember, Zuckerberg and these people, then in effect, it's not just the guy who feels free to pronounce on things he doesn't know about, but he could be having a big impact on policy, on corporate decisions that affect everyone based on pseudoscience and pseudo-knowledge. Is that a real concern? It is very much a real concern. Um, and I'll, I'll get to that point in a second because he does have, this is, you know, Sapiens is just the beginning. He has a number of endeavors that, um, that plan to, you know, like spread the word, if you will. He has a nonprofit called Sapienship that is, you know, um, poised, uh, poises him to be very influential. Like you said, he is the heir of, you know, all sorts of influential people. Um, but to an earlier point, like this, you know, we're, we're very early in, in the years of, grappling with, you know, machine intelligence or artificial intelligence. I don't even think we have like a common definition of what intelligence is or, you know, in the same way that you ask two neuroscientists to define consciousness and they say very different things. Like we, these are huge, like meaty concepts that we're grappling with. You know, we, we invented a game that could beat us at chess. And then we're like, "Mm, is that really an intelligent system? And then we're like, okay, we'll try go. Mm, Is that really human intelligence? So we're like sort of working through this. I don't think there's, there's any sort of consensus on what intelligence, human intelligence, artificial intelligence, like what, you know, what we need to accomplish to then, you know, sort of say we have, we have attained, um, this goal, um, also artificial intelligence, I think, captures a very broad bucket of technologies. And there are a lot of computer scientists who study this. There's, there's someone in Princeton I follow very closely called Arvind Narayanan, and he's done a very, not related to me, just the same surname, but um, has done some very detailed analysis of what kinds of systems function really well, like image recognition processing systems, text analysis, the places where we like completely doing so badly, you know, like predicting any kind of human behavior, whether it's hiring or crime uh, propensity or like, you know, who we will love or any of these things that Harari very much talks about when he talks about artificial intelligence. In fact, he says that human beings will become obsolete and we will just have to sort of bow down to these greater authorities who by, you know, like, so um, that it is our fate that we will be superseded and, you know, sort of uh, taken over or um, become become secondary to these. these systems. Well, it seems to me to make a statement like that, Darshna, is to jump past about four massive uh, uh, lines we have yet to cross or even understand. Right. Because. First of all, can we create such a thing as general intelligence in, in an artificial entity? And do we even need to, for that matter? Um, two, would we understand if we did? Three, would there be an obligation to subjugate ourselves to it? Four, would it even want our subjugation? You know, all of these are... Uh, are well beyond we're nowhere near addressing the first of these series of fundamental uh, uh barriers and questions it seems to me uh, uh, do you have a different view of it yeah no i'm i'm absolutely with you on it it is of course fun to to speculate and write about what this future might be or think about it you know who doesn't like science sure right? but to talk about it as settled and objective and sort of our necessary path to the future is is completely wrong 
like you just said. You know what interests me about this, and I come from more of a social science background, not a hard science like yourself, but what interests me about something like this is that to me, a figure like Yuval Harari, and then we can talk more about his ideas a little bit, but a figure like that becoming such a guru and such a, you know, such a, 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 um, a sort of preacher figure to the Mark Zuckerbergs and, uh, you know, and IMF leaders and so on of the world is that that public Yuval Harari is kind of a creation of the individual Yuval and uh, society and these figures themselves, right? It's a kind of collaborative creation, much like an artificial intelligence may turn out to be. They've created this public figure together, all of them. And it seems to me the question then becomes, why? And it seems to me that uh, a public quote-unquote guru figure that first of all makes pronouncements is god real is god not real why did we get here where did we come from and lastly we're going to become obsolete we just need to accept that and we're going to become subservient to artificial intelligences well i listen to that i think well first of all no wonder mark zuckerberg loves him and secondly it you know it fits in with the whole meta i mean you know all of a sudden zuckerberg's new company is meta well okay there you go right you know meta human but uh it seems to me harari is not just uh interesting as harari he's interesting as a social phenomenon isn't he i think very much i think i think like you said we have to ask ourselves why why do we need a harari character if you will or a harari figure why do we need um this this one superhuman who can answer all of these these questions um you know the the why the tech industry loves him i think is is probably a little bit more straightforward. He has been critical of them, but, but he doesn't poke holes in their worldview. And so, you know, he, he sort of, and given his popularity, he very much, I think, um, sort of amplified that narrative. And th- that narrative has been around for a long time. He's a very, I think he's, as, as a friend said, he's a, he's a fantastic intellectual magpie. <laughs> he picks up pieces. Right. Um, from everywhere and packages them really well. He doesn't credit people, which is another, I think, one, a really big criticism I have. You know, like, it, like, I think it's good practice to credit the people who, who have come before you. Um, but, uh, but what I was, sorry, I lost my train of thought here, but I'll, I'll stop here and let you carry on and then I'm Oh, sorry. absolutely. No, your point about not crediting is, is well taken. And in fact, if we sort of Pick apart his various ideas. This idea that will become subservient to artificial intelligence is by no means no. And, um, the fact, uh, in fact, I've done also some reporting on you know, like the insider thinking of the tech world. And for many years now, they've believed I mean, one of the reasons why some libertarian tech experts, uh, endorse the idea of a universal basic income. Uh, not the kind that I might, under the kind of conditions I might endorse, but just very minimal with no social support net, is because they basically, you know, like the economist Tyler uh, Cohen is one of the advocates of, basically predicts a future where 85% of the population will be irrelevant. 
And therefore, you know, I, I, I'm not saying Tyler puts it this harshly, but therefore, you know, keep them on a minimal income and addicted to, you know, technologies that distract them and keep them pacified. This is the tech industry view. And Tyler is also possible popular in this world. And I think Yuval Harari takes some ideas from that. And then there'll be 15% who are basically uh, tech, maybe intermediaries would be a way to put it. Um, so, uh, yes, I think all of this is is very familiar. But, uh, you know, the whole, I, I'm also fascinated by the psychology of it, right? Because to me, there's a sort of, uh, personality disorder behind it. I'm sorry to put it this way, but, but, uh, not necessarily even just, uh, I'm not necessarily sp- speaking of Yuval Harari himself, but the whole pattern that, you know, as you write, as you write, Darshna, uh, from our, uh, sweeping saga of the human species from our humble beginnings as apes to a future where, where we will sire the algorithms that will dethrone and dominate us. To me, and admittedly, perhaps I have too mystical, uh, 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 turn of personality or something, but I do not believe in a reductionist universe where humans are merely algorithms and when you write I mean, perhaps I know in one sense we are, but that I, I just don't believe that, you know, we'll write better algorithms and then we'll be obsolete. Am I overly sentimental? No, not at all. In fact, like the the one thing they consistently leave out in that story is who is building these algorithms and to what end, right? Like we get to construct the future we want. And if these are the narratives that are keeping you up at night with excitement or fear or whatever, you know, like it's, if these are the, the sort of, this is the sort of future that we see coming or building towards. It's, it's, it's very problematic. Um, I think in some realm, it could even, even be the kind of science fiction that, that we read or capture us. I know definitely people like Elon Musk or, um, uh, Jeff Bezos, they, you know, they cite Asimov, uh, a lot. His foundation series, Asimov's foundation series is about, you know, like, a a human who's, who has incredible predictive or who develops a field that gives us incredible predictive capacity that then, like, single-handedly, like, shepherds us to some future, right? But instead, I don't know, could we be reading Ursula Le Guin who, who talks about these like right, right. amazing new ways of organizing ourselves that we could, uh, we could, we could come up with or Octavia Butler or, you know, like th- th- there are all sorts of stories to draw from. Why are we drawing from, from the really awful dystopian ones? Right. Like, no, you're absolutely right. The, the Isaac Asimov stories you're speaking of, uh, Harry Selden, who, it invents something. I'm forgetting what it's called now. Futurism or something. Right. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's called psychometry or something. Psychometry, like yes. Of predictive analytics and sociology, but of course, mm. like give you this this idea that humans are predict entirely predictable. That we just need to create the good enough systems to do that. But although, in defense of Asimov, he said that humans were predictable on a mass scale. Whereas some of the others say that they're, and and what the the pursuit of Silicon Valley is to do is predict us on an individual scale, which to me is far more dystopian, but, but, uh, by the way, I can't resist telling you, Darshna, that I interviewed 
Paul Krugman, Nobel winning economist, who has said that his original inspiration for becoming an economist was Hardy Selden in the uh, Asimov stories. So I reminded him that in the foundation books, when the empire collapses, it's called the Selden crisis. And uh, I asked Krugman, is the United States experiencing a Krugman crisis? To which he replied, I'm not that cosmic. So I believe I'm the only journalist to ever get a Nobel Prize winner to utter the phrase, I'm not that cosmic. Uh, Good on you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Uh, you also... Just very quickly, though, I am totally with you on this prediction on a mass scale versus individual. And I think Harari most definitely makes that falls in that sort of pitfall, if you will, over and over again. So, for instance, his prediction about COVID ends up being wrong because it was not created in some ideological, um, for some ideological objective by a rogue army. Um, But also then goes on to talk about surveillance systems that can look at your heart rate, read your heart rate or blood pressure, things like that, and now predict with great certainty what you're feeling. We don't have, those systems are very, very hard to build. We can broadly on a mass scale in average sort of have some kind of predictive capability. But what you, right, are Richard, who is American and has certain cultural contexts and sort of maybe drank coffee this morning or didn't or is tired or whatever, like whatever these contexts, even like sort of immediate contexts are, that kind of prediction is very, very hard to do. Um, and so he's conf- he's very often conflating these two levels of, of predictive capability, I think, which is very important to make the distinction. For. Oh, I think that's so important. I'm so glad you brought that up. And in that sense, you can uh, now you do use the term science populist to describe him populist. And you compare clinical science uh, psychologist Jordan Peterson, he used that term for him as well. I would just slightly direction object just in that as an old leftist, uh, populist used to be an honored term for, uh, leftist organizing in the 19th century. I'm not that old, but in the 19th century, it's been co-opted by the right. I would suggest it's a kind of a science authoritarianism, really, almost totalitarianism. And it fits to what you were just saying about the inability to recognize individual variation within averages. Uh, it, it, it seems to me that what he misses and what's the, the desire that's expressed in this way of seeing the universe is almost a lack of tolerance for individual variation and the unpredictability on the on the individual level that makes us human um do do, do you get what i'm driving at oh totally a disregard for our humanity right for our individual humanity in in such broad you know uh sweeps it is uh it is both sad and maddening (laughs) um in some way but but yeah you're entirely right and i i uh i i am I absolutely understand your um, your hesitation to endorse the science populist. I'm not endorsed, but like your right, of course, yeah. And I li- I like the science authoritarianism. I hadn't thought about it, but I think so, now that I do, um, a, a lot of this uh, the same traits. What leads to authoritarianism or successful authoritarianism authoritarianism is a lot of the same traits that I discussed. Right, you're you're sort of weaving these yarns around, you know, like. Facts, not necessarily facts. I say facts in quotes, but um, uh, you're sort of seducing people into a narrative that's often fear-based. Um, 
I add Jordan Peterson in there. I know he doesn't entirely beat by beat um, fit into that category, but he often does the same. I think the worldview comes ahead uh, and then the science is used to sort of like kind of explain this worldview, world right? So for instance, he, um, he uses, and I haven't read him as extensively, but he uses like lobster social hierarchies to justify right. you know, like human social hierarchies, which, you know, where, where do the details line up? So these, I think in those kinds of ways, um, I think there is, there is some similarity. Uh, but yeah, it's, you know, we're like seduced not by the power of their truth or scholarship, like I've written, but their storytelling, which they're very good at. Well, yes, although I would have to think about Peterson more. I understand the connection absolutely, but it seems to me he, he, he makes a specialty out of, I can't say, I'm not an expert, but I've seen him make a specialty out of the oddly specific, like the lobsters is one, but also I saw him once say that, well, women wear blush on their face to simulate a uh, state of sexual attraction and therefore it should be acceptable that men flirt with them and they they should not object to that because they're signal you know they're a very odd kind of oddly specific deeply inappropriate and incorrect but based on uh, you know a very kind of specific choice there that's you know whereas harari it seems to me is going so wide that nobody can challenge you know um but i'm no i'm no peterson expert i um you mentioned by the I'm sorry, go ahead. Just really quick. uh, Sorry. I think when you say this, I guess the question that you asked earlier comes to mind. Why do we need figures like this? And, and maybe some similarity in them lies in these like definitive answers they give, right? They sort of, um, in presenting these answers, maybe they like there's some, some way of dealing with chaos that they, that there is, there's sort of a help, um, helpful hand in, uh, which is, which is some of the things I've been thinking about is, you know, why, why do we, as you ask, why do we need these characters? And maybe there, there is some similarity between the two. Cause I know Jordan Peterson is also very popular for his very forthright definitive answers to some very strange things. In that sense, I think you're absolutely right. I think the comparison is absolutely apt. People love Peterson because he, a certain category of a, a very different population, I think, but because he, he, provides answers that, uh, you know, he ties it all together. He makes people comfortable. He's a guru to them as well. And uh, so I think he is a reassuring figure in that way, I guess. And, you know, maybe we can, you know, close on this. I guess what frightens me in a way more about Yuval Harari is he seems to me to be a Jordan Peterson for liberals. You know, I mean, most of the people, of course, I don't, you know, my social set is not a cross-section of global society, but it's, it's nobody's is, but it seems to me the people I know who have glommed onto his books and then bought the next one, then bought the next one, smart people, good people, people I agree with on most issues, uh, but they just feel, oh, okay, now it's all being put into context for me. And I feel that that is insidious 
because, you know, as his thesis advisor, who you quote in your piece, says, you know, when you make these global pronouncements about everything, like who can fact check? I'm paraphrasing, but who can fact check you on everything? Right. I mean, nobody's an expert in quote unquote everything. So you get away with. Uh, you know, pronouncements you wouldn't get away with if you said, you know, and in the Battle of Antietam, there were, you know, 65,000 casualties. You're either right or wrong, but you start talking. So what worries me is that this sort of mechanistic, reductionist, uh, you know, mansplaining, everything else, uh, is sort of, Davos, you know, world devouring, uh, mindset is being sort of, uh, to use a Silicon Valley, uh, you know, a metaphor is uh, like being virally implanted onto the hard drives of like nice people. Uh, I like that visual. Um, as scary as that is, I think here, um, like blame is a very hard word, but I think here the problem rests not with the, the people who read him or Harari himself, really. It's like the system that allows this, right? One mm-hmm. of the things that really shocked me in doing this, and I had no idea before, is that the nonfiction book industry does not have fact-checking. They don't require it. They don't internally do it. They leave it up to the writer to hire their own fact-checkers and do it. And so... People are consuming these books as nonfiction without there being any, you know, fact checking happening. So I think that is a huge problem. And often when I talk to people and I say, oh, he mixed up cheetahs and leopards, or there's some section of people who are like, oh, who cares? Um, but, but there are people who are like, oh, I didn't, you know, I didn't realize that there's just so many mistakes in this, right? They, they're presuming that there is some due diligence that has gone into this book that is being sold as, as science and nonfiction and, you know, um, is doing so well and so lavishly praised. I think the second is, is, is that we really do need scientists to not kind of forego that space to people like Harari. Um, the academic system leaves no space for scientists to step out into the outside world, right? We're not trained um, mm-hmm. to, to sort of use narrative or um, we, we are in some respect and being unfair to say we're absolutely not, but, you know, narrative is important in science, whether you're like speaking to other scientists or not, but I I think we should be trained better to engage with the public. It should be encouraged. I know universities try this a little bit, but you know, the academic system is punishing. It's a tight, tight rope. You, you know, it's brutally competitive to get into grad school and then you do very long, at least in my fields, endless postdocs. Um, and then you, you get a faculty job and then you're working towards tenure and at no process is a popular book helpful in fact it takes time away from the things that take you to your next point right and so that space is seeded to the detriment of i think like humanity in general to people like yuval harari um and so i think in this respect we just we need we need to question the systems that we have set up and and do better for all of for all of us really i feel like that's a fantastic point and maybe should be your next piece because <laughs> In a sense, the, the, the academic track beats the plain language out of you. It, it almost turns you into an artificial intelligence. And uh, I'd love to, you know, read your, your thoughts about that in print because I think it's, it's 
super important. And uh, I would like to see more scientists explaining their work in plain English. And, and I'll just close with this. I mean, I think I, I went off the rails with Harari, uh, not because of any beliefs of my own, but when I somewhere in the early in the book, he says, well, people began to believe in God around this era and there is no God, but they began to, I saw that phrase, there is no God. And I thought, well, like, okay, this has been a matter of wars and contention for thousands of years, but now Yuval Harari has settled it. And then I thought, you know, okay, but who says you're the guy to settle this after, you know what I mean? It's like, it's like that. That's funny. You know, it just struck me. That's weird. You know, matter of authority and, you know, who, how, how he, Earned it or not, or you know who has given him that authority and why? Exactly, exactly. I'm sure he's a very Does nice man. Have that kind of authority on all of these subjects is that good for anybody, this planet, <laughs> anyone? Yeah, exactly, and I'm sure he's a lovely man, and I, 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 I don't mean anything against him personally, but I think. And he's a writing. He's a great writer. It's just you know we need to be able to like question where this comes from and if it is really objective or science-based as he claims it is. Well said. And so thanks for writing this article. I once again remind people that it's in Current Affairs magazine, which is currentaffairs.org. The title, The Dangerous Populist Science of Yuval, Yuval Noah Harari, and my guest has been Darshna Narayanan. So, uh, you know, again, thank you for writing it, and thank you for a delightful conversation. Richard, it was so fun to chat with you. Thank you so much for having me on. And with you, it was a pleasure. And we'll be right back after this. I'm Richard R.J. Escal, and this is The Zero Hour.